short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War. <laughs> Cold War 24. Hey, Ray. Hey, Cam. How are you? Just woke up. Literally, j- as you know, uh, just had to eat some sausages. And cheese Kranskis, right. if you're interested, with tomato sauce. Ketchup, that is, for Americans. Uh, having my coffee, because uh, up at the Fox at 4 o'clock in the morning, and alarm did not set, and... Uh, yeah, uh, my brain is like, uh, it sounds like Mark Antony, my brain. Mark. <laughs> so are you recording wearing the same thing that you're sleeping in? Because that would really help me with my imaginings later on. That's what my brain sounds like this morning. <laughs> Did you see... Somebody uh, on our Life of Caesar Facebook page said he'd finished listening to a recent episode. He's working out at the gym, and he thought the episode had finished because we played the outro music, and then I stuck that clip on at the end, and he laughed so hard he fell off the uh, pull-up bars or something and oh collapsed on the ground. People thought he'd Don't hurt himself. They rushed over. Yeah, yeah, embarrassing. Yeah. Um, wow. He's got a story to tell now. Yeah. It made me happy yeah. when I read that. Um, <clears throat> so on the last episode... We got started talking about the Cambridge Five, not the famous five, completely different outfit. Um, mm-hmm. The major difference is the Cambridge Five didn't have a dog. Uh, would have Aww. would have been a lot more successful uh, if they had have they had a dog. Successful. Have had yes. had 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 English they is had, had. English is fucked. Really had had. <laughs> what kind of language it, makes you say that? If they had had a dog. It has more exceptions, I think, than almost any other language. If so. they'd had yeah. a dog. If they had... Had. If they had a dog. Had, Just had. if they had a dog. Had, had. I don't had know squared. What. Had to. A dog. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about Kim Philby, uh, mm-hmm. the other most famous member of the Cambridge Five we will talk about today, Guy Burgess. Very different character. To Kim yes. Philby, much more however, eccentric and flamboyant. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, you were but saying. Still however, what balls of steel? Yeah, yeah, and and these guys got away with it for such a long time, at a very high level. Um, so, Guy Burgess, Guy Francis de Montsey Burgess was his full name. You can probably tell from that that he was posh. Very posh. Posh. Guy right. Francis de Montsey Burgess. Um, mm. And whilst guys like Kim Philby 
uh, were very self-controlled, shunned public scrutiny. Uh, Burgess was wildly flamboyant. and put it out there, baby. Yeah. He often got embroiled in scandals as a result of his drunken behavior. Was a rampant homosexual. Now... I'm not, not that ex- there's anything wrong with that. No, I'm not exactly sure what being a rampant homosexual actually means. How do you ramp? Hey, everybody, look at me. I don't know. <laughs> He's ra- I don't know. <laughs> rampant. You always see those two words put together, a rampant homosexual. D- but what does... Disease rampant? homosexuality, which is not fair to them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he came from a privileged background, attended... Toffee schools, went to Eton College, and of course, eventually attended Trinity College in Cambridge, which is where he became a secret agent, a spy. I, yeah, a spy, that's right, um, and eventually a mole. But um, he did have the brains to back this up. This isn't just um, some rich kid who's bored. When he left Eton, he had graduated seventh out of the first 100. So this guy's got the smarts for all of his crazy. Goings on later on that well, I'm sure we'll get to. He, he, he certainly had a first-class mind, and he is going to put it to great use over his life for the Soviets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think being a, a spy like this, uh, particularly when you're uh, an agent provocateur or whatever they whatever they call what he did, that's not an agent provocateur. That's, that's when you're doing like a double agent thing but right. being part of the british secret service at the same time as you're spying for the russians it's got to take a fair amount of intelligence i think to pull that off successfully and get away with it for as long as they did you, you and, yeah. have to, i mean there's so many opportunities to get caught out and, and to fuck up yeah. when you're doing that or, or- or just to get tired of the whole thing because he literally thinks one way and he has to act and speak mm. almost the opposite way every day of his life. I mean, how do you compartmentalize? How do you not go crazy? As we're going to see, some of the it, it did get to them, you know, eventually in some form or whatever. But yeah, it's just got to be hard to literally go against what you believe or your nature almost every waking minute. And um, and just another thing I wanted to throw in there, he. All, all the uh, male Burgess before him went into the military, and he was he was in the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth, and he was going to go into the Navy as well. But his eyesight wasn't as as good as it needed to be, so a little frustrated there. So he's got to find some way to do something what the men of his family line had not done before, because clearly the military is not going to be his future. So again, you just got to think that I don't know. He's just. He's got to do something new, and then he's going when he goes to Cambridge. A whole other opportunity is going to come open for him. But again, just to fake your entire life for almost your entire adult life, it's got to be very stressful. And particularly, the point I wanted to make is, whilst we all, I think, do that to various extents, yeah. you if you work in a corporation, you may hate your boss, but you put on a friendly face to your boss, or you, or that you exactly. might disagree with the decision, but you go along like you do agree, or you may not like the ethics or the values of the place where you work, but you need the job, so you shut up and smile and go along. But particularly being a homosexual, uh, even today, for many many men and women, uh, is... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
a, a situation where they find they have to um, pretend in, in, in certain places anyway that they're not. Um, you know, I, I know lots of gay guys that grew up in the Mormon Church in Utah, and wow. and, and you can't be gay in, in the Mormon Church, <laughs> uh, really. Um, so they would they would you know get married, have kids, knowing full well they're gay, and, and some eventually crack ten years right. later and go, sorry, I, can't, I just can't do this anymore. Others probably do it their entire lives. Um, I know, you know, a couple of older guys that I'm, well, one in particular I'm thinking of. No, I won't mention any names, but I'm pretty sure he's gay. You know, he's in his 60s, married, kids are growing up. But you, you meet this guy for two minutes and you go, yeah, gay. Absolutely gay. Yeah. <laughs> Gaydar just goes, ta-da. Um, but uh, yeah. in England at this time, yeah. between the 30s yes. and the 40s, we know that it was uh, a much uh, more dangerous situation to come out as uh, homosexual. Um, Wasn't it still illegal? It was still illegal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So flat out could not do it, especially if you're going to go a spying. You can't obviously let that side um, get known to everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was uh, not too long before this where... Guys were going to prison. They were committing suicide uh, mm-hmm. because they were outed as um, homosexual in England. In 1707 in the uh, United Kingdom, anal sex and zoophilia were declared punishable by hanging. Right. Uh, no, sorry, let me go back a step. So the, the, the laws were changed. In 1533, in the Buggery Act... Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? In England. Yeah, they had the Buggery Act. Uh, it, it, was, it was created by Henry VIII. Now, if anyone should, should be making laws yeah. about right. the standard of acceptable moral behavior, it, it should be Henry yeah. VIII, because uh, he, was, he was the pinnacle of moral behavior. Uh, well, he probably would have had a son if he didn't occasionally turn the wench over and do it anyway. So um, I'm sure he was doing that too, and he wasted some decent sperm. He probably could have got a boy and saved us all this horrible trouble. But anyway, I digress. The guy that goes, what do you mean the church won't let me get a divorce? Fuck the church. Well, let's just create our own church. I'll create my own church. And people will still... Attended hundreds of years later, people will say, you, "What religion are you? Church of England?" Yeah, no, that's not a real religion. That was just invented by Henry VIII so he could divorce his Doesn't wife. Matter. It's not a real religion. Um, yeah, so in 1533, the Buggery Act uh, said that anal sex and zoophilia were punishable mm-hmm. by hanging. Damn, uh, that was the mess. country's first civil sodomy law. Right. Bit of ass play, you get hung. <laughs> Better make it good. Which reminds me, I've got to tell you, have you heard the uh, Amy Schumer, Katie Couric story? No. Uh, this is a great story. I've got to tell you. So, you know who Amy Schumer is. I, I assume everyone yeah, listening yeah. to this knows her. Very funny, very funny. Everyone remembers Katie Couric. Darlington. Do you know who she is? Yeah. So... Uh, a few months ago, Amy Schumer was telling this story when she was going around that she had been at some sort of um, 
an awards ceremony or something, and she was sitting next to Katie Couric and, and Katie Couric's husband. And at some point in the night, Katie Couric got up to go on stage to accept an award or went to the bathroom or something, and Amy grabbed Same Katie's thing. phone secretly, put it on the table, and texted Katie's husband from Katie's phone, do you want to do anal tonight? <laughs> Now that that was the story that that Amy was telling, and it was funny. But I heard Katie Crick; she was on Mark Maron's WTF recently, oh, and she said, and he brought this story up, and she said, but she said the, the the best bit was, and Amy didn't tell it was her husband's response that he texted back, which was again with a question mark. <laughs> I just love that man. I just can't picture. Well, she is a UVA girl, so. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's probable. She, it's probable. She it's talked probable. about Virginia a lot on this uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. I think she her sister, yeah. her sister was a up and coming uh, politician in Virginia, right. but she died of breast cancer or colon cancer or something recently. No, well, not recently, but yep. you know, ten years. That's ago why we have the Emily Couric Cancer Center at the UVA Hospital that is a part of my clinic. Oh, really? There you go. Well, Katie Couric yes, apparently yeah. as started after her husband her first husband and her sister or mother or both died of cancer she started a mm-hmm. chance uh, cancer charity she says she's raised they've raised over 500 million dollars yes wow built a very nice building yes it was listening to that where i realized we should start a charity with our podcasts we sh- or religion that we were not taxed. <laughs> yeah. well, but we'd start both <laughs> But we will do that. We're going to pull that together over the next couple of weeks. I think uh, some sort of charity that we'll get involved in with our shows. That'd be good. Yeah, absolutely. We should give back to the community. Now absolutely. that we've been in Forbes, we're rich, we're famous. It's all right. it's all done. It's over. We've uh, finally, our, our genius has been recognized. Exactly. I can make it rain quarters all day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we should give back. Anyway... Yes. <clears throat> Where were we? Uh, James Pratt and John Smith were the last two men to be executed for sodomy in the United Kingdom in 1835. Mm. But um, wait, 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 wait! I'm sorry. What? Please tell me you're not talking about the John Smith. Yes, the, no, that, that, Doctor Who. No, who is the John Smith? Okay. All right. No. No. Sorry. No, I don't. No, think... from Pocahontas, but that's that's a couple hundred. Sorry, I'm, yeah. I'm getting my John Smith. Yeah, I'm no, getting I my th- Smiths mixed up. Yeah, I think if you if you're thinking that there's only one guy that's ever been called John Smith, <laughs> probably, no, probably. No. I just got so excited at the idea because my girls are doing a project on Pro- Pocahontas. I was going to put you on pause and run upstairs and Guess explain what? John Smith and anal sex to him real quick. Yeah, but he, no. he had sex with the guy and got hung. It was awesome. <laughs> They, they 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 edited that out of the Disney film. That, that's that's Mel, Mel Gibson refused to record those lines. When they do the musical version of Pocahontas, which they've probably already done, <laughs> I want to have that bit back in it. Yeah, they got to bring right. it back in. And Man then John love. Smith went and fucked some dude. Pocahontas wouldn't give it up, so he went and fucked a dude, and then they hung him. <laughs> the end. Good night, boys and girls. Sleep tight. Don't stick it in the poop chute. I've had... You know, we're trying to transcribe the Julius Caesar series into a book, and I had a number of people recently email me as, as volunteers to take on some of the transcription work. And one nice. of them, Martin Darlington, MD, uh, in his email to me said, 
you know, uh, you know, I know the shows, I know the in jokes, I know how to spell poop shoot. Like uh, <laughs> that was an important requirement for being able to <laughs> transcribe our shows. Anyway, back to gay sex. Um, anyway, the uh, Offences Against the Person Act of 1861 removed the death penalty for homosexuality, but male mm-hmm. homosexual acts remained illegal and were punishable by imprisonment. Now, note I said male homosexual acts. none on none was fine. None on none? None. Oh, N-U-N, none. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, they encouraged that. Yeah, so the the legislators in England, the time people said, well, what about girls and girl and girl? And they're like, are you kidding me? We're going to write that into a law. Make that. We want want more girl on girl. That's fine. What are you even talking about? Yeah. But my, yeah. man, man, no, it's just disgusting. We don't want that. Yeah. But girl on girl, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, it, my notes say lesbians were never acknowledged or targeted by legislation because, as every good British man knows, women don't like sex. They don't want to have sex. No. Uh, they are purely there for the man's pleasure. And exactly. uh, we don't need to talk anymore about that. Oscar Wilde uh, was convicted... Uh, mm-hmm. and sentenced to two years of penal labor. Now, right. he got excited when he heard that. He said, <laughs> penis <laughs> labor? What? Yeah, then they explained it to him, and he was like, oh, <laughs> really? Uh, and that, that was in 1900-ish, I think. Anyway, yeah. there you go. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, back to Burgess. Yes, Guy Burgess. So, so that was just a long fucking rambling way of saying that <laughs> he was living two lives, living a double life uh, was right, something absolutely. that all homosexual men needed to still do yes. in England to to varying degrees. I think in, in the 30s and the 40s, uh, there were probably some that were out and proud. But generally speaking, it would harm your career chances if you were a... If you were in the arts, maybe, if you were in the theatre, uh, right. or if you were in dance or, or, or in acting of some sort, it was right. probably fine. Or if you were a lord, if you were rich and living on your landed estate, if you were in uh, Downton Abbey. Any gay right. characters in Downton Abbey? I don't think there were. I don't. Uh. Oh, well, yes, no, there the, was the, the, the butler yeah, dude. The butler or yeah, yeah, is, the but... butler dude. But even he had to hide it. Didn't do a very good he job. Did. Uh, not that no. I watched Beyond Season 1, but... Chrissy kind of kept me tell me what happened. Um, yeah, yeah, but generally speaking, if you unless you were rich or in the arts, you you would have had to have hidden your uh, sexuality and uh, right. Um, but the difference between that, at least at that stage in England, and every other form of mask, Billy Joel esque mask that we wear, mm-hmm. is being a spy. The 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 what's the word I'm looking for? My brain's not working. The the stakes were a lot higher. You right. you would die. So there is my point is that whilst we all wear a mask and we all lead double lives somewhat, uh, this podcast is a double life. You and I in yeah. re- oh, here we go in real life mm-hmm. are very well spoken, <laughs> genteel. <laughs> Uh, man, we wear, oh, yeah. we wear plaid jackets, yeah. we have leather patches on our elbows, we smoke a pipe, oh, sure. 
And we're, yes. we're very, we're very, very, we don't, we, we're not, we're not clowns no. in real I, life. I let it out here. I bottle it up and I <laughs> uncork it when I turn the microphone on. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but yes, the stakes here were very high if you got caught. Fuck, that was 10 minutes of saying nothing. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So eventually Burgess ends up, because uh, he's not going into the military, like you were saying, he goes to the Trinity College at Cambridge. Uh, he is uh, able to join the Pitt Club, which is nothing more really than a drinking club. But again, it is exclusive. Not just anybody can join, but he's right. He's, he has the right background. So he joins that. And so I'm not sure if he was drinking a lot before then, but he certainly does start enjoying it. And the summer of 1931, he meets Anthony Blunt, which we'll obviously go into later, but uh, Blunt brings Burgess into the Society of the Apostles, which is, again, a secret society at Cambridge. Previously, it was pretty much about religion that had that had waned over the years, but the, the, the society was no, now pretty much about friendship, about getting each other's back, taking care of each other. There was homosexuality within the Society of the Apostles, but as long as you kept it discreet, no worries. So, mm. so he he is experiencing alcohol and uh, homosexuality in Cambridge, but as long as you uh, can still show up into your classes and <clears throat> behave yourself during the day, you know, mum's the word. No one's going to say anything about it. Mm. The uh, founder of the Society of the Apostles was mm-hmm. Albert Henry George Grey, the fourth Earl Grey, who is also <laughs> the Governor General of Canada. <laughs> Did he come up with the T? Yes, yes. The, I knew that. Yeah, nailed it. Yeah, he was the fourth Earl Grey T. He he invented the T. You know what we need? More T. What? We knew. We do. He invented T. Um, one day, just while he was running Canada, he invented T. There you go. The fourth Earl Grey. History fact, people. Yeah. I actually don't know what the connection is between him and Earl Grey T. Somebody, one of our British listeners, you probably know this shit. Tell us, you know, what his connection is to Earl Grey T. Please do. Yeah. Um, But yeah, was not, was not gay as far as I know. Right. Can, yes. Sorry, I thought you were going to say something. Oh, I, I could, actually. Um, let's see here. His first year um, in college, uh, unemployment is very high throughout Britain. Obviously, this is the uh, horrible economic um, chaos that is going to bring Hitler to power in Germany. But within Cambridge, obviously, as we said, because of where these people come from, their families and their families' money, they're not suffering. They're pretty ignorant of a lot of that. That's going to change in 1933 when Clement Attlee comes to Cambridge and speaks, and he speaks about child poverty. And his speech actually shocks the students, and it certainly shocked Burgess. And you could say that maybe this was a part of him going, you know what? Yes, it doesn't matter that I'm British and I'm part of the world's greatest power and we have all this money. The economy's bad and there are so many of our own people right here on the home island that are suffering. Something's got to change. Something's got to give. I'm not saying that caused his conversion to, to going to the left, but it seems to be certainly a part of the process that had him thinking along different lines that something has to change within our country and I've got to do something about it. Mm. Earl Grey T, by the way, is assumed to be named after Charles Grey, the second Earl Grey, British Prime Minister in the 1830s, uh, reputedly received a gift 
of tea that was flavoured with bergamot oil, uh, which is an essential oil produced by the rind of the bergamot orange fruit, uh, which is what's in Earl Grey tea. It's black tea with this bergamot orangey stuff in it. Just had just had to look that up. I wouldn't be able to sleep tonight if I didn't look that up. No. So um, straight out of uh, Cambridge, he has a series of jobs with politicians and the BBC. And then uh, when the war started, he was recruited mm-hmm. into Section D of MI6 as a propaganda specialist. Now, I think we talked on the last show, the Philby show, about the role of the BBC in times of war. Did we did we do that or did I imagine it? Where they were putting coded messages. Yes, uh, you did talk about we that. We talked yes, about that, yes, right? Yes, you did. Yes, yes. Um, so Burgess returns to the BBC and ends up becoming mm-hmm. producer of The Week in Westminster. That was the name of a show, The Week in Westminster, which was uh, sort of a, a, a political show where they covered parliamentary activity. And uh, he was able to use that show to meet lots of politicians that he didn't already know, increase his circle of influence. And, of course, when he was recruited by Otto, the same guy who recruited mm-hmm. Philby in 1934... Remember, um, Otto said to Philby, who else do you think would make a good spy? And he said, <laughs> right. Burgess, McLean, all those guys, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He was uh, in a very, very interesting position. So he'd already been uh, very successful in running this political show for the BBC. Hey, let me let me back up for a second and just cover something. So... Um uh, let's see here. In 1937, Burgess is able to get a job at the talks department within the BBC, like you were talking about. And the talks department, um, what they try to do is they try to bring on specialists or they bring on politicians and they tr- pretty much try to have a one-on-one with a conversation with the person and try to really get into the nitty-gritty, as we call it. We try, They try to deal, drill down on issues. And um, Burgess became very good at that. He became the number one guy. And as such, he was given responsibility for you know the week in Westminster. And like you said, he was able to meet a, very, a lot of powerful politicians. He was able to ask some questions. He was able to befriend them. He got invited to their home because he was right he was from the right social and economic background and again all of this stuff that he is taking in he it, it goes to the it goes to the Soviets because he was recruited in uh, early 19 excuse me 1937 um, and so again he's he's making these these connections he's getting these reports he's interviewing these guys and of course after the interview they would talk and it would be off the record and he would get even more data and all of that would end up going to moscow so when it comes to the goings-on of parliament moscow had a very clear idea of what was going on almost on a day-to-day basis so they were literally reading their letters reading their notes and it was just amazing i i can only imagine the department within Soviet Russia that was responsible for reading and processing all this information because they were getting a ton of information just from Burgess alone. Forget Philby, forget McLean, forget Blunt. They were just getting uh, almost daily reports from these guys. Yeah. Just a no, I think he said he was recruited in 37. I've got he's recruited in 34. Same time, okay. same time as uh, Philby. 
Oh, that's right. No, he, yeah, thirty seven. He goes to the talks department at uh, the BBC. At the BBC. Yeah, the yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. as I said before, um, he was a very different personality to Philby and the rest of the Cambridge Five. He was not only homosexual, but very promiscuous. Apparently, frequently mm. extremely drunk. Even in these days, his breath always smelt of booze, tobacco, which uh, sounds good to me. I mean, you know, that's yeah. that's the way I like Where's the downside? to smell. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I don't see what's wrong with that. He often had egg stains on his jumpers. Again, a man yeah. who likes to drink, smoke, and eat bacon and egg sandwiches. You're going to smell some. Sex. That's okay. And yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he had dirty fingernails. Uh, he yeah. was committed. For, he was charged with a number of drink-driving offences. And the thing about Burgess is, up until recently... He, since all of this came out that he was a spy uh, in the the fifties, uh, mm-hmm. it's always he's always been portrayed as just being more of an embarrassment to England than actually an effective spy. But in in the last uh, ten or so years, as the Soviet archives have opened up, what historians have discovered was that in fact he was an extremely successful. Spy. Yes. So he's always been portrayed uh, as just a bit of a joke, really. He was just a bit of this flamboyant joke that uh, pulled the wool over the eyes of the the British elite and MI6 politicians. But and he was, you know, it was sort of this loud mouth, uh, gay, drunk guy. But he was actually right. very effective despite all of this. I mean, very few gay men became Soviet spies. You know, right. We know that uh, Soviet views then as now uh, regarding homosexuality aren't exactly very open and transparent. Uh, they, they still have a fairly anti-gay uh, 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 yeah. climate. Unofficial policy. In exactly. Russia. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. And most spies weren't gay. But so uh, this guy was a real conundrum. Not only was he fairly openly gay and just uh, 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 sort of a, a crazy loudmouth, but he managed right. to be a very successful spy despite all of these things. Now, in terms of his homosexuality, he, interestingly, ascribed his sexuality to his years at Eton. Uh, now, most of I think most of us these days believe that your your sexuality is inherent. It is something that you were born with, uh, although we don't know all of the details around the, the genetics behind sexual preference. Right. There's a whole bunch of studies. I read one the other day that says there seems to be some connection between how many older brothers you have and the size of your family. Uh, the, mm. the, the more older brothers you have, the higher your chances of being gay. Uh, It's fascinating. Identical twin studies are determining a lot of stuff about um, genetics and homosexuality. But according to Burgess, he said it happened in his years in Eton, but also he told some people that he, he suffered a traumatic incident at the age of 13 when he heard a scream from his parents' bedroom, ran in and found his mother trapped under the naked body of his father who had died while making love to her. Oh, my God. And Burgess said that he thought that made him gay. Mm. Now, 
you know, I, I don't think I ever had to see my father's naked ass and balls. Um, but I think if I had seen it, my response wouldn't be, oh, that looks a bit of all right. I think I might go get some of that. Uh, or maybe it's having sex with women will kill you. Uh, from I'm only going to have sex with men. But, right. but he was also a bit of a bullshit artist so the, and, and obviously a drunk. So the one of the suggestions and one of the biographies I read of him was that, uh, yeah, he used to just like telling people stupid stories. Um, so anyway, I thought that was that was pretty fucked up though, right? Imagine... Yeah. <laughs> imagine if, if you really thought that is uh, what turns you gay, was seeing your naked father dead on top of your mother. I mean, just imagine... Well, it's going to be horrible yeah. for him. Just imagine somebody dying while they're fucking you. I mean, that's uh, right. that's got to be one of the worst <laughs> ways to have a it's loved one be go, the right? worst, yeah. We, you got to think about the next 30 seconds where the mom says, help, come lift him off. No, I'm, oh, I'm good. Oh, yeah. I'm good, I'm good here. Yeah. I'm good. Oh. I, I left uh, oh. the toaster on. I, yeah, I, I yeah, gotta go. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. If, if I can uh, add something to what you were saying. So, again, December of uh, 38... Burgess quits the BBC. He goes to Section 9 of the Intelligence. And um, <clears throat> right before the war starts, yes, he's in Section D. And, and their job is to, kind of, I think we covered this last time, but I just want to make sure, their job is to come up with ways of attacking a country besides militarily. You know, go in there and create sabotage, labor unrest, inflation, uh, that kind of thing. And they were already trying to uh, cause as much trouble in Austria as they, as they possibly could. And... Um, Burgess is giving the Soviets information about what the British are trying to do in Austria against Germany. So again, so he's moving up. He's he's got a very sensitive job now, and it and it just strikes me. I don't know how many Tom Clancy books I read when I was a kid, or Cold War movies, or whatever. But the Russians would always, or not always, but the Russians would find uh, someone in a low level government job who had access to stuff, find out they're gay, and then make them spy for them. Force, you know, they would basically blackmail them, mm. saying, "If you don't do what we want, we're going to tell everybody." And here's this guy who's pretty much open about it. But like you said at the beginning, if you were born from the right class, you have the the right kind of friends, and you have a house out in the in the country or whatever, you can get away with a lot of shit in Britain because that's just the way it was. You were you were untouchable by a lot of the country. Only your peers could mess with you, and if they did not you could get away with things. That's just the way it was. That was the same way I blackmailed you into doing this podcast, if Pre I remember. Pretty much. Pretty much. I said, Thank if you, you for keeping my secret all this time. Yeah, no, I think I've done a pretty good job of uh, <laughs> avoiding any homoerotic humor in this uh, homoerotic no insinuations. Yeah. No uh, suspects a thing. Now, not only did Burgess spy for Moscow, but he also spied on behalf of competing factions within the British government. There are suggestions that he spied on Neville Chamberlain, who was the British Prime Minister at the time, for MI6 in the Foreign Office. And this is right. something but the, we don't, yeah. something we don't think about uh, often enough, is the, the, the way that spying goes on inside of our own governments and, uh, you know, one party spying on the other party and leaking information, etc., etc., trying to overthrow domestically the governments of the day. Right. And the other, the other side of that is um, Burgess was actually used by Chamberlain to send communications directly to Mussolini when Mussolini was um, 
causing trouble in Ethiopia and the wars and things like that in, in, in Africa. What it is is uh, Chamberlain was not getting along with his own foreign office. They didn't trust him. They were trying to sabotage him. So he used Burgess to send secret messages between Chamberlain and Mussolini and back and forth. And you, as you can imagine, there were copies made of all of these things and again sent to Moscow. So they just really knew wow. what was going on in such a wide area of, of the British um, uh, intrigue of uh, counterintelligence. Again, he was just like you said. He was spying for different sections, but all of it, copies of all of it, was were going to to Moscow. And MI six was so brilliant in their uh, understanding of who was working for him that at one stage they suggested Burgess should penetrate the Russians by arranging to get a communist party post in Moscow. They said, you know what would be brilliant is if you could pretend to be a communist and yes. you know get a position working for Russia. Yeah. Pretend you're a communist. He's like, really? Do you think I could I could do that? <laughs> I could pull it off. <laughs> they, were, they said, well, we know you can pull it off. We've been watching you pull it off, but. Uh, they- so they they held up their hand. Look, we're expecting a high five for him. Isn't that a great idea? Yes, yeah. but yeah, but again, he's pretending to be this 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 pro right person this entire time. Obviously, as a, as a cover for his his real feelings. So at one point, he was simultaneously running agents for both the British and Soviet intelligence services. Uh, intelligent. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's deep. That's deep penetration. Someone who, How would you not forget who you are at some point? Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just fascinating to me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just to, to keep your, your stories straight and uh, yeah. keep the lie going, uh, particularly if you're drunk half the time. I mean, hard enough if you're well, sober, like, let alone when you're drunk. But here's the thing. I'm going to pretend to be pro-right. I'm really pro-left. Now, again, he wasn't He wasn't um, a Stalinist. He was either a Marxist or a communist. And he wanted to help the side that seemed to be the only ones standing up to the Germans because the British and the French were being pushed around politically and in every other way possible. And they're about to be pushed around militarily. So he really thinks he's helping the one side, Soviet Russia, that could possibly stand up or, or th- militarily threaten uh, Nazi Germany. So he's got his cause. But my point is, I'm going to tell all these lies. I'm going to live this double life and I'm going to live a triple life. But I'm going to be completely honest about my alcoholism and my homosexuality. Homosexuality, I'm going to have a lot of fun. So, But just to keep all that straight, to be honest about your homosexuality, about your sexual preference, and then pretty much lie about the rest of your life. Just, just staggering to me. Somebody who knew him described him this way. He was very open about his communism and homosexuality, but one didn't believe most things Guy said. He was a very <laughs> right. amusing talker and a natural liar. So, hey, I spy for Moscow. Yeah, so he, I, apparently he didn't. Like Philby, like we know that Philby positioned himself as being right-wing, but apparently Burgess didn't. He told everybody, hello, yes, I'm a, I'm a communist. <laughs> And they were like, oh, oh Burgess, the, you're such a crazy. clown. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> um, I put it out there. Now, he, he was very deeply embedded in the upper echelons of British society. He had uh, apparently an amazing uh, array of lovers and sort of dinner party friends, including Winston Churchill, Maynard Keynes, mm-hmm. who we talked about in the economics episodes, the great economist, W.H. Auden, 
Isaiah Berlin, George Orwell, Lucian Freud. These were all friends, like buddies of his. Right. Um, that he would That's catch right. up and have drinks and dinner with. And I've got some clips of him talking about some of his interactions with Churchill that I'll play later on. So he was not just flitting between MI5, MI6, the BBC and the Foreign Office, but he was uh, at a social level. And it's... Right. He pretty much knew everyone who was everyone, uh, and they knew him. So it was very deeply connected. I don't, I don't want to jump ahead and get a nasty email from someone. Uh, that, let me ask you this. The next part of my notes has, a, has to do with the Ribbentrop-Molotov agreement, but I won't say anything if you've got something before August of 39. Uh, no, I don't, so go ahead. Okay. So you know, as we know, um, the British are pretty much pretending to want to go through the motions of signing some kind of treaty with uh with Stalin to keep um Hitler, you know, from militarily doing what he's been doing politically for the last couple of years, which is grabbing land. But what Stalin is going to find out because of Burgess and the others is that London doesn't really mean it. So Burgess is sending notes to Moscow that the British are bluffing. They don't really want an agreement with you. And the reason they don't is because of all the, the purges that Stalin did. They don't think that the Russian military is very effective. They don't think it's worth anything. They're, they're pointing at the example of Finland when they got their ass handed to them for a couple of weeks, uh, maybe even a couple of months. Um, and so Stalin is hearing the British. He's hearing the French. He knows they're full of shit. And then suddenly Hitler rings up or sends a letter, says, hey, I want to send Ribbentrop to you to come out to have some very high-level talks about some very important matters. Now, the the Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union had hated each other for years, especially when, obviously, when Hitler came to power. But Stalin is like, well, I've got to take care of me. Yes, I know Hitler's going to attack me one day because it says so in Mein Kampf. But if I can get an agreement with him now, I can buy some time because he wants to obviously attack to the West. I can get the time that I need to build up my armed forces. And I know from their own words that the British are not serious. So Stalin takes the agreement with Hitler knowing it's bullshit, but it's a lot better deal than he's going to get from the British because the British had no intention whatsoever of actually signing anything. They were willing to talk for weeks and months, they would send people over, but there was going to be no fundamental, excuse me, there was going to be no um, signature on anything. And as we've covered in this show, Stalin was one of the most practical human beings on this planet. He's like, give me results or get the fuck out of my face. And he took the best deal for him at the time. And you you can't blame the guy. Mm. Yeah, no, he knew what was going on every step of the way because of these spies that he had. Uh, so you can't really blame him for doing this deal with Germany when you knew the Brits weren't serious. Yeah. Now, between 1941 and 1945, Burgess alone passed more than 4,600 documents to Moscow. Damn. And no one suspected anything in England. Um, now, of course, in the days of Edward Snowden, that doesn't sound like a lot. He, I think he walked out of the NSA right. with like 50,000 documents on a USB stick. But these were the days when we didn't even have photocopiers. Burgess was having yeah, you to, had to take a photo yeah, with a camera <laughs> click, of click. every page and yeah. uh, send it off. So this is um, an astounding amount of work. In fact, like we said in the last episode, he was so successful that Stalin suspected him 
of being right. an agent provocateur planted by British intelligence. Now, agent provocateur is French for inciting agent, and it's a person who either commits or entices another person to commit an illegal act or falsely implicates them in partaking in an illegal act. Somebody who tries to get somebody else to do something bad in order to get them caught so they can't do anything worse. Right. It might Damn. be it's, sometimes you hear about this in the US where um the uh FBI will find some young Muslim guy and they will encourage him to become a terrorist and to build a bomb so they can arrest him and say, look, he, he was That's a terrorist. Bullshit. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah. But, but you convinced him to do that. They go, yeah, but if it wasn't us, it would have been someone else. So it's better that we convince him to be a terrorist than <laughs> so someone else convinces him to be Jeez. a terrorist. So, that, so Stalin worried that these guys were actually working only for the British and trying to entrap the Soviets. But no, no, they were real. Yeah. They were real, real, real spies. Now, he, Burgess alone revealed to Moscow not only the British thinking around these sort of pre-war agreements, but over the course of the war, he uh, gave Stalin information on their secret decisions to postpone the Second Front. Uh, yeah. and, and I think Philby did as well. But as we, I think, mentioned in the last episode, this is why when Churchill would go to go to see Stalin after the, in the early years of their um, alliance, and he'd say, "I have some bad news regarding the Second Front." You know, Stalin was like, right. "Really? Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm so surprised. Oh, I'm so surprised." <laughs> This is me shocked. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because he knew. If he I, knew ahead of yeah. time exactly what Churchill was going to tell him. Uh, even the all of the stuff after the war, uh, like the, 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 the British and American thinking around the United Nations, uh, dividing up Germany, right up until the Korean War, uh, <coughs> Burgess was giving Stalin the British Damn. plans and thinking and, and their correspondence with the Americans and all this kind of stuff. He knew everything. If I could um, back up for a second. And, and this is, to me, this is really interesting because already this spying sounds like it's a three-level game of chess, but it's it's going to get even more confusing. So as much as... Um, as much as Burgess is giving them in some, in some areas, he didn't give them everything. So after Nazi Germany attacked Soviet Russia, June 22nd, 1941, and the allies are helping the Russians. If you back up and think about it for a second, Burgess and Philby and Blunt and McLean, in some ways, they're not doing anything different from their government. They're, the British government and the American government were giving information to Soviet Union. They were giving them supplies. They were giving them things. Um, so in some ways, they were almost paralleling, paralleling each other's work, except for what Burgess was doing. It was illegal, but if Churchill does it, hey, it's okay. But I thought it was interesting. But the one, the two things that, for whatever reason, and I couldn't find any details on this, Burgess didn't tell them anything about Ultra, which is where the Allies were able to read, the British was able to read Hitler's mail, and also about the atomic bomb pro program. I'm thinking that Burgess probably didn't know. He probably didn't have access to that kind of information. But so they're. But he's giving them everything he possibly can. And again, everything that's going to the uh, British ambassador in Moscow, Cripps, 
you know, Stalin's getting it almost at the same time that, that Cripps is getting it. But here's the part I wanted to make about that you were mentioning about Stalin doesn't trust Stalin doesn't trust Churchill. Philby and Burgess are getting information that the that the that Ger- Germany is about to attack USSR. Stalin not only does not believe it, but he says, "No, let me tell you what's really happening. Germany is going to team up with Britain and attack us together." This is how paranoid this has got this guy is. So every time he hears um, Burgess or whoever tell him. Germany is about to attack you. He's like, no, they're both about to attack me. And this is nothing more than a smokescreen. So when Stalin, when we say Stalin was cut off guard on June 22nd, 1941 at 5 a.m., he truly was. He truly thought it was going to be a joint adventure between the U.K. and Nazi Germany. They were both going to come at him. And he just had no idea what he was about to get into, which is why he lost a million men within a couple of months because he didn't have his men in the proper place. But the one time he was really getting vital information, he did not believe it because of his own worldview, his own paranoia, his own propaganda, what have you. But they were telling him the truth. And at that moment, he just chose not to believe it or he couldn't believe it. Yeah. I just think it's amazing. Yeah. What's next? Thanks, President Bartlett. Um, (laughs) So... Uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, uh, when we we're talking about Philby, I think Burgess uh, ends up being given a posting at the British Embassy in Washington after the war. Damn. And uh, he eventually gets kicked out after more bouts of drinking and getting. He got caught uh, speeding three times in one day. In his Lincoln convertible, <laughs> I gotta go. Let me go. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta hurry up and be there. But of course, what we think actually happened is he was deliberately arrested, uh, so mm-hmm. he would get recalled back to London. Uh, he was right. trying. He was trying to create a scene to give him an excuse to get out of Washington. And in fact, uh, a few days later, he and Donald McLean fled to France and ended up in Moscow. Remember, we said last time that Philby f- saw the paperwork that said that the uh, yeah, the Americans, close to him. yeah, the Americans were getting close to working or having evidence against Burgess and McLean, so he warned them. And then, uh, yeah, Burgess was able to uh, create a ruckus that gave him yeah. an excuse to uh, get the fuck out of Dodge. And uh, he went to Moscow. He and McLean went to Moscow at the same time, where Burgess stayed for the rest of his life, uh, died in 1963. Now, I've got a couple of clips of Burgess here, unless you want to throw something in before I play these. I do, if I could. Yeah, yeah. uh, Just a couple of things. So in March of 44... Burgess gets another job in the foreign office decoding and analyzing top secret messages from all over the world. So now he has more access. He has higher access than he's ever had before. And he's doing his job. But again, a copy of all of that, just like you said, at night after his work was done, whip out the camera, <laughs> take a picture. <laughs> it goes to it goes to his uh, handler. So again, and here's here, here's the part that I that I really love. In June of 1944, the four spies or the five spies. Um, are told that Moscow was very happy with what they have been doing for over the years. And to show it, they're going to start paying them life pensions 
now, even though they're still working, even though they're still relatively young, they're going to they have to decide if they want to get paid every three months or once a year. This is what their their uh, Russian handler tells them. And each one of them separately responded generally the same way. Thank you. No, thank you. All I'm trying to do is help stop fascism, and you guys are the ones who are standing up to them. I just want to do my part. I don't want any money. I'm just trying to help the party. I'm trying to stop Hitlerism and Mussolini. And so they all were very, you know, we, we, can, we can say they were horrible. They were traitors. They were whatever. But they really believed in what they were doing. They worked very hard at it. And they sent a ton of information to Moscow. And again, it wasn't about the money. These guys believed in a cause. They were trying to stop Hitler. And you can say that communism is bad, but I guess if you compare it to Hitlerism, <clears throat> you're, you know, you're going you're gonna to see communism, communism in a much better light. And, and just one other thing. Um, and uh, let's see here. Where is it at? Okay, in, in the spring of 1945, and I'll just make this real quick so you can play your clips, Churchill and the other Allied leaders come up with Operation Unthinkable. And what that is, and this is July of 1945, uh, the spring of 1945, right before Churchill's voted out of office. What they, have, what they are starting to work on is a plan to attack Soviet Russia. <clears throat> what they're going to do is they're going to take the forces of the United Kingdom, the United States, and they are going to rearm the part of Germany that is under their control, and they are all going to launch an attack against Stalin in case something goes wrong, in case talks breakdown or whatever, but they've got this little plan of war in the file just in case they ever need to pull it out at the last second. They've already got it all planned out, and a copy of that, because of Burgess, gets to, gets to Stalin. So you've got to think about Stalin for a second, thinking about Churchill. So when Hitler attacked me, you didn't send me any forces. Yes, you sent me supplies, but you didn't send me any forces. Stalin didn't like that. You're focused on the Middle East, and you're not helping me. He's thinking about that. You delay time and time again the second front. So I'm thinking about that. So by the time Stalin and Churchill are meeting, Churchill not only probably loathes this man, but he knows he can't trust him because Churchill has for decades been saying communism is, is evil and we have to do everything we can to crush it. So Stalin knows exactly what he's dealing with when he talks to Churchill. And when Stalin made that famous speech about Churchill will take a kopeck out of your pocket, he also said that speech that of, out of all of them, Churchill was the most dangerous enemy that Soviet Russia had. Yeah, and knowing all of that, knowing that Stalin knew all of that, I mean, the the cordial nature of their meetings, as attested to yeah. in Churchill's own memoirs, is kind of astounding. You, you you imagine meeting this guy that you've you've hated each other from a distance. You know this guy has. Uh, by the by, the time they meet in 1941, you know that uh, he is um, not your friend. And then a year right. after year goes by, the second front doesn't open up. You've got all this information on his secret thoughts, his secret planning, and yet they managed to, according to Churchill's own memoirs, they had there was a very good vibe between the two of them after yeah. all of their meetings, even you know up until Yalta. Um, and Potsdam, right. Churchill's last meeting with him as PM, um, he, he, there's a very cordial relationship between them. They, they, Stalin loses his temper from time to time, but then calms down. 
I don't know. I think Stalin was as good a bullshit artist as Burgess and Philby and Churchill. Talk about your two faces. Uh, yeah, talk about your two faces. You know this guy wants you and everything about you gone, and yet you smile, you shake his hand, and you work together day after day after day sitting around a table because, and the only reason, you have a common enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's right. Today. Tomorrow, we'll leave for tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. So, um... Yeah, as I said before, uh, they end up fleeing. Burgess and McLean end up fleeing to Moscow in 1951. Philby, of course, remains a spy for more than a decade (laughs) after that. He gets away with it, even though at the time he was sharing an apartment with Burgess in... uh, Was it McLean? Uh, No, I can't remember which one. Uh, I think it was Burgess in Washington. Um and uh, anyway, in uh, just before that, just before he had to get the fuck out of Dodge, <clears throat> there, uh, Burgess attended a dinner party in New York in 1951. And uh, there was a, a friend of his from the BBC there who recorded some of the conversation, which I have a copy of here. So this cool. is Burgess maybe four weeks before he escaped to Moscow, talking about the time he gave Winston Churchill some advice. Basically, as you'll see, he's saying that in 1938, the day after Chamberlain signed the appeasement deal with Hitler, uh, Churchill and Burgess had a chat, and Burgess gave Churchill some important advice. And as you'll see, Burgess's Churchill impersonation is nearly as good as mine. Here's the clip. It was the morning after Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned from Munich, having just signed a deal with Hitler. The door was opened by the butler, and I saw Mr. Churchill sitting in his study by himself. Britain and France had agreed to Germany seizing part of Czechoslovakia, and Churchill told Burgess how the Czech president, Edvard Benesch, hair beans, he called him, had begged his help. And Mr. Churchill said, um, first thing will be to show you and allow you to read a letter. It's in English. I have it in my pocket. It's from hair beans. I read that letter, and Mr. Churchill looked at me and said, um, you see... Herr Beans has written to me. But what assistance can I offer? Here am I, said Mr. Churchill, thumping himself on the blue boiler suit that he was wearing. Here am I, an old man, without power and without party. What help shall I give? What assistance? Can I offer? And I uh, said the right thing at that moment and said, um, Oh, Mr. Churchill, don't be so downhearted. Um, Offer him your eloquence. Stump the country, I said. Make speeches. Awaken people, I said, addressing him as though he was me. Awaken people, I said, to the issues at stake, I said. And... um, he was rather pleased by that, I think, because he, he, he warmed 
and said, Ah, oh, yes, yes, my eloquence. That indeed, her beans can count on. This is a real bit of history, and it's history. <laughs> anyway, leave it there. Um, what, what did you think of that? Yeah, I, I read about that, and Churchill also signed a copy of his speeches, and he says, if war comes and I go back and I get back in power, come find me, bring this book, and I'll remember you, and I'll find you a job. So, yeah, it, it was a pretty cool meeting, but um, you've got to think that's true because he told it several times, and Churchill never disputed it. So, again, this guy had connections to everybody that mattered, sometimes before they mattered. What I love about that story is a couple of things. A, at the time when Burgess was was telling that anecdote, he would have known that he was sort of under investigation. Yeah. That the doors was, were yeah. closing on him. And I think it might have been his attempt to show that he was not only a patriot, but in fact the guy who convinced Churchill to <laughs> stiffen his spine uh, right. that, uh, that enabled him eventually to become prime minister by getting out there and giving speeches and, you know, saying, we must yeah. stand up to Hitler, etc., etc. And also, and also stiffen the spine of his country, yeah. So this one man can turn himself around and then turn around the country. So it's very uh, self-flattering story, <laughs> yeah. the way it's told. And, yeah. and if anyone thinks that the story is, is, is bullshit, that Burgess is just making it up, the BBC has on record a memo that Burgess wrote on the 4th of October 1938 after he had the meeting with Churchill because uh, he was working at the for the BBC at the time. So uh, it's 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 at least that much as factual. What well, the content of the story he may have right. embellished, but the actual meeting happened. Yeah. Now, interestingly, there are still in terms of all this spying stuff that happened and World War 2 and Cold War era documents, the British Foreign Office still has a million files that are being kept secret. Damn. They include 19 boxes on Burgess. Oh, my God. 19 oh my God. boxes of files about Burgess's activities that we still don't know about because the British Foreign Office yeah. haven't released them. Um, but we do have... Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to say, and you were right, because he did such a great job and he made the British uh, intelligence services look bad, they have to spin it. They may ha they have to make him sound like a weirdo or a loser or whatever. But the fact is he was able to do this for many years and got away with it. So, yeah, they've got to make him look bad because he made them look bad. Mm. Um, now, we do have this last clip that I'll play. This is Burgess speaking to Canadian Broadcasting in 1959. So at this mm. point, he had been in Moscow for eight years. Now, this clip was only rediscovered in the last few years. It uh, was unknown. Apparently, it was like this talk show. And um, there was a, as these talk shows do, they have three or four guests uh, one of the guests was some famous Canadian celebrity at the time. And on the tape, the videotape of this broadcast, it was her name that was written on the outside of the tape on the label. No mention of mm -hmm. Burgess. So people never ah. picked it up. And somebody just happened to be looking at it one day and went, oh, my God, there's an interview with Guy Burgess while he's in exile only a few years before he died. Um, in Moscow. So uh, this is fascinating. Let me play this. This time eight years ago, 
Both Guy Burgess and Donald McLean were still working in the British Foreign Service where both were trusted officers. Both had come from good families, won honors of Cambridge, both had access to the diplomatic secrets of the Western Alliance. But among their friends were the atom spies, Claus Fuchs and Alan Nunn May, and security agents had begun to look into their left-wing sympathies, their record of drunkenness, and their homosexual tendencies. On the night of May 25th, 1951, Burgess and McLean boarded the Channel steamer for France and sailed into limbo. What clues there were in the next four years pointed to the Soviet Union, but the Russians played dumb. The pair had vanished. Burgess and McLean had rocked the NATO alliance and caused the spy scandal of the century. Then one day in 1956 at a press conference in Moscow, Burgess and McLean reappeared to admit they were now working for the Russians, but to deny that they were spies. In Moscow last week, close up met Guy Burgess and interviewed him in the shadow of the Kremlin. Donald McLean, now using the name Mark Fraser and living in Moscow with his family, was unavailable. This was Guy Burgess when he disappeared in 1951. At that, a passport photo. A lifetime later, Burgess speaks to the West for the first time about his defection. Well, uh, that's a very long story, and my friend Tom Dryberg wrote a book about me, which was going to be uh, serialized, I believe, in Canada. And then uh, the serious crisis intervened, all there was outside pressure, or Mr. John Foster Dulles didn't like it, and it was not published. It was not serialized in Canada. I'll give you a very short answer. I went abroad as a tourist. It's all in his book. I simply went as a tourist. I and my friend approached the Russians, said, could we come in? They kept us waiting in Prague for some weeks, then agreed. That's all. Uh, Co-conspirator Donald McLean. What's become of him, Mr. Burgess? Uh, Donald McLean is doing exactly what I'm doing. He, that is, he's working in a publishing house, but um, which is a traditional place where uh, foreigners do work when they come here. Uh, we don't work in the same publishing house, and therefore I don't see him very often. I lost him a month ago. We were never close friends. And uh, uh, tell me, everybody considered you and McLean to be traitors. What have you to say to that, Mr. Burgess? Ah, well, um, I don't think you're quite right when you say everybody thinks. Judging from the letters that I get from uh, people whose names I won't mention, I don't want to embarrass the people who write to me. They certainly don't think so. You said everybody thought so. Um, it's no use me saying that I'm not a traitor. That means nothing. Uh, of course I'm not, but that's any uh, I who know that. Um, the only evidence that's ever been given... Oh, oh, I correct that. Uh, no, I correct that. Uh, before I left, the British government states in its white paper that they had no evidence at all that I was a traitor up till the time of my leaving and for some years afterwards. But then came along a little man called Petrov in Australia, who had been a Russian spy in Australia. He 
sold information, cash on delivery. We say in England, COD. The more information he sold, the more cash he sold. The more cash he got. His is the only evidence that has ever been quoted by the British government that I'm a traitor. Of course, it's hearsay evidence, because he heard it from somebody else. It could never be used in a court of law. We have the same legal system as you, and hearsay evidence cannot be used. Well, the uh, Attorney General might interpret your activities differently. But, Mr. Burgess, you're thinking of visiting England. Do you have any immediate plans? Uh, I, no, I told you earlier, I want to live in the Soviet Union because I'm a socialist and it's a socialist country and I enjoy doing so. I can't imagine living in England during Cold War. On the other hand, naturally, everybody likes his own country best. If the Cold War was finished, I don't know what I could do. Uh, immediately, I would rather like to go back to England for a month to see my uh, family. But I will never do that unless I can be quite certain that I can get out of England and come back to Russia, which is where I want to live. I don't want to be treated like Paul Robeson, to have my passport taken away. I'm not allowed to come back here. Uh, the British authorities are quite as capable as the... Uh, no, I think not. No, uh, uh, the Americans are worse. But there would be a danger that I couldn't get back. Mr. Burgess, how has eight years in Russia changed your life? Well, men don't have changes of life. Uh, uh, we can't have that. Men don't <laughs> have changes of life, but how has it affected my life? Well, I can answer that quite simply, you know. You, I'm broadcasting on the Canadian system. Canada was populated by emigrants, including my own grandparents, from England. There are still a lot of people who leave England to live abroad for various reasons. Nobody thinks it's odd, though I think it's wrong. There are people who go to live in Kenya because only there can they afford to keep butlers. I live in the Soviet Union because I've, all my life since I was a student, been a socialist. And the Soviet Union is the leading socialist country in the world. Tell me, what do the Russian people think of Canada? Do they think of us as a satellite of the United States? Look here, I'm most unwilling to give any answer as to what the Russian people think. I'm a quarter Canadian myself. I get very annoyed when uh, Mr. D, who I don't want to attack because he's under difficulties, physical difficulties, when Mr. D treats Canada as a satellite, I don't, I think it's Mr. Dolly's and not the Russian people who regard Canada as a satellite. Well, some people have said that you've influenced Russian foreign policy, Mr. Burgess. What do you think of the foreign policy of the West? At this time, well, I can't understand why all the moves and suggestions for clearing things up seem to come from this side. Mind you, I'm no longer in the Foreign Office, and I don't know. I don't know what their reasons are. Uh, I do get letters from friends in England, and I know that they're not altogether happy 
but there's a fuss going on at the moment about Berlin. Now, as far as I understand it, and I've probably got it, I may not be quite accurate, I haven't seen the papers, and I must, at this point, tell you something. I cannot claim to have inside information in Russia, and at no point, and nothing that I say, am I speaking for the Russian government with which uh, I have uh, no connection. It's quite wrong. I'm a guest in this country, in any, and therefore anything I say is my own opinion, and only my opinion. Only as a guest, I see. <laughs> and what do you do with your spare time? Well, I've always had two hobbies. One of them uh, is um, motor cars. I've taken, I think, the autocar magazine. I haven't missed a week since I was nine. I don't think I've missed a week of motorsport, which is an English sporting magazine, since that paper was published. A pity, now that you have no car at all. Uh, but finally, <laughs> what is your political philosophy? Well, I, since I was a student, I've been a, a, a socialist, an extreme socialist. I'm a Marxist. You ask my political philosophy, the strict answer is a Marxist. I am not actually a member of the Communist Party, here or in England. I was a member for some years. I resigned. They have a phrase in Russia, which is um, a non-party Bolshevik. I would be very proud indeed if I'd um, earned such a title. If he has earned the title of non-party Bolshevik, Guy Burgess has equally earned the scorn of the homeland he deserted. Next week, Malcolm Muggeridge, visiting close-up in Toronto on other matters, will comment further about Guy Burgess. Well, what'd you think of that? Damn. Yeah, so... Obviously horseshit, but uh, I'll save <laughs> some final comments because when we get to the end of Don McLean, it sheds some light on their leaving and, and what they did once they got there, that kind of stuff. So uh, I'll yeah. save that for the next show because I know we're over. But yeah, so it'd be a bit cool as a cool as a cucumber and you'd have to be to pull off what they did. I came to Moscow as a tourist. <laughs> Just... And I decided to... Dave, yeah. eight years. I'm a socialist, an extreme socialist. I always have been since I was at school, but I came as a tourist. Bullshit. They have no and I evidence. Left my family behind. Anyway. <laughs> they had no evidence against me. Anyway, yeah. Love it. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll be back next week. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Cambridge Five, Don McLean. And I've also got some stuff from Philby's own autobiography about his reasons for becoming a spy, which I think has uh, got some insight into it. Until next time, same Cold War channel, same Cold War time, whatever, time. something like that. Yeah, yeah. An iron curtain! In my shower... military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.